If you've got a Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. We've been in this chapter for like four weeks now, I think. I think that's right. And we've seen, a, we've seen a lot in this little chapter, including some of the most controversial and disputed, difficult to interpret passages in all the, all the Bible, much less all of Hebrews. What we've seen is a lot of encouragement to look at our own lives and to analyze ourselves, to look for marks of true faith and to worry lest we should fall away from Jesus and take on to something take hold of something else besides him something that won't hold us what we've been saying all along is that that's a really dangerous thing to do it's something we're called to do so, so we do need to analyze ourselves but we've got to be really careful with that because if if as long as we're looking inward then we're we're tempted to forget the promises of God that are outside of us that that don't depend on us but are there for us to claim in faith and it's like the author of our of our letter knew that that was our temptation. So he follows up all of this talk about us, about sort of, you might say, subjective talk, stuff that we're supposed to look at in ourselves to analyze where we stand with Jesus. He follows all of that up. He ends that section today with a passage that focuses us squarely on God's promises. Now, all that sounds pretty good, but there's, there's, there's a catch. And the catch is that I think this is one of the more bizarre passages in the, in the letter to Hebrews, because everything about it hinges on God's oath, on God's oath that he swears by himself. And I am guessing that not many of us, if we were asked why we believe the gospel, why do you think it's true, that any of us in this room right now would answer, oh, I believe it's true because God swore to it by himself. I mean, oath, oath-making, I don't think in, in our day, is nearly what it was in Jesus' day, the day when this letter was written. I hear people swear all the time, but it almost makes it, it, it's almost why, the the fact that I hear people do it is almost why it's so hard to see why this matters, because it's usually people who are always saying, I swear to God this, I swear to God that, are are usually the ones that you can't trust, right? That's why they always say that. I mean, just the fact that they're swearing to it makes you think what they're telling me is probably not true. There's so much that's lost on us, but This passage pulls no punches. What it says is that God, looking ahead to everybody who would inherit the promises to Abraham, what that means is looking ahead to us today, right now, looking at this verse together, that God seeing us in the future and wanting us to have a strong encouragement, this passage says, that's the word that it uses. What he did to make that happen was swear an oath by himself. We want to spend our time this morning unpacking this oath. I get that it's culturally distant for us, and it's going to take a little bit of work. But I think if, we, if we're able to, to dig deeply enough, you will see why this oath that he makes is so remarkably beautiful and encouraging to us. Ultimately, the oath that God makes is the reason that we can have hope even when things around us and things inside us call into question the promises that he's made to us. That's where we're headed this morning. What I want to do is, is take this in two steps. I want to look at how God's oath makes his promises secure. That's the main point of the passage. His promises are already there. Now he swears an oath to them. I want to, I want to look at how that makes those promises secure. 
And then I want to look at how his oath makes us secure. This is the more like experiential side of it. Like how you, thinking about his oath, can feel the security that he wanted you to feel when he decided to make an oath to his promises. That's the two steps we're going to take. How his oath makes his promises secure and then how his oath makes us secure. Now, if you found Hebrews chapter 6, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read uh, Hebrews 6 verses 13 to 20. This is the word of the Lord. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes... An oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's word. You can be seated. How does God's oath make his promises more secure? Did you guys see it? See that? That's the subject of this passage. He was looking at these promises that he's made to Abraham. He wants Abraham and everybody else who inherits Abraham's promises to believe them. And the, the extra weight that he adds to them to help them believe is an oath, a, sw- a swearing by himself. Why does that make his promises more secure? I want to walk through this passage step by step to see if we can get a, a clearer handle on it. Verse 13 announces the subject of the passage. When God made this promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. And don't miss the significance of these promises to Abraham. I wish we had time this morning to really unpack how the promise that this passage is talking about is the thing that undergirds everything else that happens in the Bible. From the time it's, it's said, this promise is made. Everything that happens, including the conquest of Canaan and the the kingship of David and the promise made to him and the the, the exile and the restoration from the exile and ultimately the coming of Jesus are all elaborations on and fulfillments of promises made to Abraham, promise that through Abraham, God would remake the world, that through his descendants, God would claim for himself a people who would honor him as God and whom he would care for as his people and give them a land in which they could be secure, not threatened by all the things outside of our control that threaten all of us. That was the, that's the essence of this promise. I'm going to save you, Abraham, and through you, the world. When God wanted to make those promises secure, he swore by himself. That's verse 13. Then verses 16 and 17 unpack it. Verse 16 gives us an analogy to the legal system at that time. And then verse 17 shows how, God, how, it, how it relates to God. It sort of applies what, what goes on in the legal system to what goes on with God when he swears. So look at verse 16. 
describes the legal system would have been very familiar to his people. People swear by something greater than themselves. That's the basic principle. And when you've done that in their system, it settles it. That's it. Every culture that swears by something, it shows in the thing that they swear by what they really value, right? So you can think just in movies or literature that some cultures swear by their honor. By my honor, it is true. And in those cultures, honor is what matters. That's, that's, that's everything to you. You would, rather, you would rather die than sacrifice your honor in those cultures. And you even see it a little bit in people who swear by scouts' honor, right? Because if I don't do this thing, then the scouts are, uh, their, their reputation is besmirched in the eyes of all who see, right? And you wouldn't do that to the scouts, right? Their honor matters. People swear on their mother's grave in a culture where ancestor veneration really, really matters. In, this, in the Old Testament, there were all these rules for swearing by God himself because he was seen to be the highest thing in the universe, the thing that's the most valuable and the thing that will hold you accountable. So if you break it, you are going to receive his wrath. That was the idea. You didn't make, you didn't make oaths by God lightly. In our society, I, don't, I, I get the sense that we don't really do this very much, but if we do, it's kind of money, right? Because we value money more than anything else. We say, put your money where your mouth is. Oh, you can dunk that basketball? Put your money where your mouth is. Verse 17 explains how this relates to God. When God wanted to convince the heirs of the promise, and that's us, right, that he was good for it, he swore an oath by himself. That's what verse 17 says. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. I think this is the the point. There was nothing higher than him, nothing more valuable. And when he swore by himself, he put himself on the line. He staked, in other words, his own reputation to his care for us. And what the Bible says consistently from the beginning to the end of it is that there is nothing more valuable to God than his own reputation. And that is not in the sort of petty, insecure way that our reputations matter to us. But it is, in the essence, it is at the essence of his holiness, of what makes him good and perfect, is that he has a perfect love for what is perfectly lovable in a way that we don't. The whole world is here, we're told, as a reflection of his glory to make him look good. And when he says that he is swearing by himself, he is saying, I am not who I claim to be if I don't deliver on the promises that I've made to you. He is staking himself to his promise. And he can't change. That's the idea in verse 18. By two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. The two things are the, oath, the promise that he's already made and now an oath to it, rooted in the character of God who cannot lie. If he lies, if he should prove untrue to his promise, then he isn't God. That's the, that's the gist of it. So, so let, me, let me give you a couple of analogies that I think will help with this. The, the, the claim we're making here, the, the point of his oath is that trust in the promises that he's made to us is really an extension of our trust in him. He is, the reason, he is whom we trust. He's the reason we can hold on to the promises. So here's an analogy. We always view promises through the lens of who makes them. 
right? That's what we always do. It's campaign season. So we're about to get bombarded by tons of promises on both sides of the aisle. Promises of all sorts of things, right? Of services that are sure to improve our lives and not cost us a penny. Believe me, it won't cost you a penny. And we know not to trust them, right? We just don't trust them. Because we, don't, we consider the source, we consider the history behind campaign promises, and we know it would be foolish to trust them. But think of, another, think of another analogy. Think of a little girl who is afraid to jump into the pool. She doesn't know what the pool holds for her, right? The water is so much bigger than she is. Maybe she doesn't know how to swim. But she has a loving and a strong father that tells her that it will be okay. It promises her that she'll enjoy it. It promises her that he won't let her come to harm. And she believes the promises because she believes her daddy, right? That he could never wish her harm. That he's strong enough to act on his good intentions. And she jumps. She believes the one who's made the promise. She believes in him even more than she believes in the promise itself. The two are even really inseparable for her. Because she knows he is strong and he is good, she can act on his word. In verse 18, we're told we have two things. The promise that God is for us, that he has freed us from sin's power and effects, that he has freed us from the tyranny of death. And we have an oath made by the God who cannot lie to trust in these promises because we trust in him. That's the point. This is really, I think, a beautifully surprising thing if you think about it. Why in the world would God make such a commitment to somebody that he owes nothing to? His word should have been enough. Him just promising it should have been enough. But he adds even more because he wants us to be encouraged. That fact, that desire, he leads him to condescend to us, to sort of bend down, stoop down and give us what we're looking for something that we can understand and see. He adds an oath to make us even more sure. Here's what he makes us sure of. The God of all creation. The God who grounds everything that exists could sooner pass out of existence than be untrue to you. Do you get that? He has sworn by himself. So if his promises aren't true, he is not who he claims to be. But God can't change, so the promises are true. Now, here's why that matters so much. The second thing we want to look at this morning, how God's oath makes us secure. I hope it's clear how his oath makes his promise secure, that he has staked himself to it, that, those, that the promise and the identity and existence of God go hand in hand, that he would, he would sooner pass out of existence to be labeled a fraud in the face of everyone than he would let these promises go unfulfilled. That's how his oath secures his promise. Now we want to know how, in our experience, how does the fact that God swore to us by himself make us secure? It makes us secure because it takes our confidence out of the realm of the present, out of the realm of our feelings, of our personal comfort, of our present joy, And it grounds it on what can't change. When God wanted us to have stronger hope, he gave us himself as security. 
I think this text helps us connect with this in a couple ways. What I want to do is I want to pull this example from Abraham that he's already given us. So he mentions it in verses 13 to 15. I want to to make sure that you understand the significance of him citing Abraham here. It matters so much if we're going to claim in our own experience the security that God wants us to have in the oath that he's sworn to his promises. And then I want to pull out the image that he gives us that, that sort of helps us to understand this security and the image of an anchor it comes out in verse 19. That's the two steps I want to take. Both, both really trying to do the exact same thing. Help us understand and connect with the fact that God swearing by himself gives us a security that the things that happen around us or inside us can't ultimately affect because it's rooted in him. Think about Abraham. He goes there in verses 13 to 15. This swearing of an oath that he, that he reports here in Hebrews That comes in a crucial moment in the Abraham story. In Genesis chapter 22, we're told the story of of Abraham being called on to sacrifice Isaac. And it's Abraham's faithfulness in that story that leads to to this oath that we've just been considering. Here's the story. Many of you are probably familiar with it. Abraham was promised by God when he had nothing and when he was too old to physically produce another child. He was promised by God that he would have descendants, that God would make him great, a nation out of him, and that they would be faithful, that God would remake the world through them. Abraham received those promises and he acted in faith. He left everything that he had known and he went where God told him to go and he He wavered here and there. The story is clear on that, but he had faith. And 25 years after the promise of a son was made to him, he he gets Isaac. Do you get that? That is longer than probably half of you have even been alive, that Abraham waited to receive the promise of a son, and he gets him. And then God comes to him in the night. Genesis Genesis chapter 22 tells the story clearly. And in the night, God tells him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, period. No explanation. No elaboration. Take the one that is the visible representation of everything that you hope for. The only thing that stands as proof in your mind right now that you can actually see that God will be true to his promises. I want you to take that visible proof, all of it, and throw it away. It's shocking. What is that about? Not only does he love this son, but can't you imagine that Abraham had to have been reeling, trying to understand why God would even ask him of this. If you love me and want to fulfill promises to me, why are you? This is barbaric. This doesn't fit with the character of God as I understand it. A God of love. A God who creates these children in his image and now he's telling me to kill him. How could God expect this of me? It's the exact same kind of questions that we ask when we suffer. How could a loving God, a God who says that he is all of these wonderful things let me go through this. Abraham experienced what all of us have at one time or another, where everything visible that he could see pointed against the truth of the promises. 
And the reason God asked him to do it and the reason God commended him for his faith is that God wanted him to ultimately trust in the God who makes the promises, not in the signs that the promises are true. He wanted him to have a faith that could not be thwarted even when everything around those promises was crumbling to the ground. A faith in the God who had staked himself to it. It's when Abraham has faithfully obeyed God that God swears by himself. That he essentially gives him an oath that confirms everything that Abraham had just done. He swears by himself, confirming that Abraham's faith was was really first and foremost in God, not in anything he could see. Hebrews chapter 11 that we're going to get to later says it this way. He acted in faith because he believed that God could bring Isaac back from the dead. He believed that everything in his his visible plan, everything he could see could be ripped out from under him and God could still make good on his promises because God had the power to resurrect his son. That's the kind of faith that we're called called on. It's, It's a faith that is rooted in the God who staked himself to our promises, in his character, and in the fact that he can't lie, not first and foremost in anything that we can see. It's a faith rooted in God, and that makes us secure because when our lives shift like the sand, our confidence doesn't shift with them. That's where the second image I want us to look at really comes into play, the image of an anchor. It's brought up in verse 19. We have this, and the this in this case is this oath, this promise, these two unchangeable things that make us secure. Verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. The point of going to an anchor here would have been immediately obvious to the people who are reading this letter. They'd been on ships with anchors. They knew that, that without an anchor you were toast. Without an anchor, when when the seas turn against you, you have no defense. The idea of an anchor, of course, is to to drop it from your ship to make sure that you don't drift away. Without one, you're just at the mercy of the waves. If you just drop it and it lands on the sand, you're still at the mercy of the waves. What you're looking for is to drop it and drag it until it catches something on the bottom of the sea, something sure and steadfast that won't let you go. Don't miss this distinction. The anchor imagery helps us here, I think, so well because of this. The anchor doesn't protect you from weather that turns bad. The anchor doesn't change what you see. What you see may be an angry sea. It may be a hurricane. It may be waves that are washing over the sides of your boat and just tossing you to and fro. The anchor doesn't change your experience. The anchor holds you fast through it. God's oath, which is to say God's whole character, his whole self being staked to these promises, acts like an anchor because it stands below anything that our circumstances can throw at us. I mean, I think that the whole imagery itself suggests to us that that things aren't always going to be good. That's not what he's promising us here, that there's no storms that are coming. He's promising that he's going to hold us fast through them, that we won't sink by what we see. Now, he refers to the priesthood of Jesus, and we're going to talk a lot about that in the next few weeks. Here, I just want to make sure it's clear that we need to recognize, like Abraham did, that, that God's resources 
to make good on his promises are not limited to the things that we see. So what we've got to trust in is his goodness and his power and the fact that he has claimed he is not who he says that he is if he's not true to us. I think this helps us in two ways. I think it turns us from our circumstances and letting that ground our confidence and it turns us from ourself, letting what we see in ourselves ground our confidence. If that's, if that's where your hope is in the gospel, if it's in what's going on around you in your life, you know, how pleasant they are or how bad they are, or if it's in yourself, what you see, you know, how good you think you are, how bad you think you are, then you are, you are a ship without an anchor and you are not going to be held fast. But if, if our confidence is grounded in the character of the God who swore by himself rather than in anything that we see, then we've got an anchor that holds firm. Let me say more. It protects us from resting on our circumstances for our hope. Here's the reality. I mean, we're, we're by and large a younger than normal congregation. So chances are that, that most of us have not suffered in, in the ways that we will have 30 years from now, right? But in a room this size, it's almost a certainty that, that at least one of us in here, one of you, is going to get cancer. Almost certainly, some of us in here may lose our jobs. Some of us may lose children. And if our confidence in the promises of God is rooted in what we see, then we'll be crushed. Abraham received the shocking command that threatened all visible hope, that called into question God himself, that made him ask what we do when we suffer. How could God let this happen to me if he really is good, if he really is loving, and he really is powerful enough not to let it happen. Yet Abraham had faith that held through that because he trusted in God and not what he saw. This sort of faith, this sort of anchor, turns us from our circumstances. It also turns us from ourselves. I mean, this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Most of chapter 6 is calling on us to look at ourselves, to look for marks of genuine Christianity, to pursue those marks. We want our lives to look like we really follow Jesus, and we have no reason to believe that we're genuine followers of him if, if he hasn't made a difference in us. It's like, though, that this author, this pastor that he is, knows that people can run wild with that kind of looking at themselves. And that they can be beaten down by it, dragged down. If your anchor is in the character and the promises of God instead of what's true in yourself, then you rest secure. If your confidence in your share of the promises that God has made is rooted primarily in what you see, however important those things may be, again, we're not discounting what we've already said earlier in the chapter, but if your confidence and where you stand with God, whether you share in the promises he's made to you, is rooted in what you see in yourself, primarily, then you are going to be crushed. Because you have done things you shouldn't have done. And your guilt is going to start to weigh on you. 
your anxiety, when you see that things are out of your control, is going to make you wonder if you ever really had faith in God at all. Some of you will struggle with doubt and wonder. It's sort of always in limbo, wondering if you have enough faith to sort of seal the deal with Jesus. And if you let yourself focus there on what's true in you, rather than what's been said to you from God, then you're going to be crushed. You're a ship without an anchor. But if you let your guilt and your anxiety and your doubt drive you to the promises of God and especially to the one who made the promises, to the one whose oath promises us him, not just what he said to us, but he himself being for us. If, if, if your guilt and your doubt drive you to him for security, then, then your anchor will hold. So maybe what you need to do Maybe the call of this passage to you is to get outside of yourself. As long as your attention is fixed on you and your experience, then you are at the mercy of what comes. You're like a ship without an anchor that's tossed around and at risk of destruction. But if you fix your attention on him, you're secure. How do you do it? I think some of the Psalms could be so helpful in this. Especially some of the praise psalms. Just Google praise psalms and you'll get a great list immediately of which ones fall into that category. What those psalms are meant to do is to point us back to everything that's true about God. Some of the psalms are about expressing our experience. and They're great at that. They give us good language for it. They, they cry out in despair and protest and joy and whatever. They express our emotions, but But sometimes what you need is an anchor that doesn't have to do with what's true of you, but what's true of God. And and when that that is true of you, go to Psalm 33. We looked at this a week or so ago in in a Bible study. Go Go to any of the ones that come up and just read the truth about God and remind yourself that this is the one who has staked his name to you. You could sooner pass out of existence than be untrue to you. Read good books. Read in particular, if you haven't, and if you know you need a stronger anchor, that your confidence in God isn't what it needs to be as the bedrock for your confidence in his promises, read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. There's a copy right back there on the table, resource table. It's yours. Just take it and read it. Because what he's going to do is hit you with punch after punch all through that book of things that just raw truth about God And it's only through having your gaze turn from yourself to God and what's true of him that you're going to have any kind of progress in overcoming the sort of weak and drifting nature of your Christian life, if that's where you are. The answer is to get out of yourself and to look to him. Father, would you help us to do that? We we are so consumed in our attention by what we see. We're like children. We want to be mature. We don't want to drift, as we were called in chapter 2 of Hebrews. We don't want to drift away from Jesus. We know we get tossed around. That's true for all of us. We know we don't have a promise that storms won't ever hit us. 
but what we ask for is an anchor that can hold us through them. An anchor that is sure and steadfast. Would you help us to claim the oath you've sworn? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, Lord, great is thy faith.